All right, good morning. All right, good morning. All right, good morning. All right, good morning. There, there we go. All right. All right. Good morning. <laughs> it's good to see everyone here this morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge. Uh, a few announcements as we get started this morning. Um, our monthly women's Bible study will be meeting this evening at 630 here at the church building. Uh, ladies, y'all be going over uh, chapter 7 in your book. Uh, that'll be on benevolence. So that'll be this evening at 630. Um, and then also um, uh, this Wednesday, as, as was last Wednesday as well, but um, for the, is it for the month? I think it's for the month of uh, Yeah, so for, yes, so the Groves have graciously opened up their pool uh, every Wednesday from 11 to 2 o'clock for any children who uh, are home during the summer and want to come and um, you know, just do a pool social. Uh, so the pool is open there. Yeah, adult fellowship too. Yes, I, I was getting to that one. Yes, yeah, yes. Just a reminder: it is not just drop your kids off and come get them. That's for you and your children uh, to come. So that's pool social at the Gross House, uh, eleven to two on Wednesdays. Um, if you need directions or anything, see uh, Caroline there in the back. Um, and, and, and again, that's for adults, uh, you know, with or without children. If you just want to go and socialize and hang out, bring a picnic lunch uh, for you and your family, whoever's coming. Um, and uh, of course, all your pool gear and everything, uh, you know, as well. So that's uh, but that'll, that'll be throughout the summer for the school year, per, uh, weather permitted from 11 to 2 at the Groves House. All right, uh, and then uh, missional communities. Just a reminder: we will be taking a break for the month of July. Um, that is been our pattern in the past where you know we will do missional communities will meet regularly for six months and then usually one one month during the summer we take a break um and then uh, we get back into the swinging things for july or excuse me for august all the way up through the end of november and we'll take another break in uh, in december so we're going to take a break uh for july if your missional community still wants to get together hang out do uh you know service project be involved somewhere that is absolutely fine um, you know, we're not saying you can't meet, you know, we're just telling missional communities you have the opportunity to take a break, uh, you know, for the, for the month of July. All right. Um, and then missional community leaders, you don't get to break. No, I'm kidding. Um, the leaders will have a meeting uh, with Alan and I just to kind of do an assessment for where things are for mid-year. That'll be uh, Sunday, July the 18th at 630. Okay, so just mark your calendars for that. Um, also a reminder for the, um, our involvement in the Renewal Wade Hampton program through uh, Miracle Hill. Um, Natalie still needs some volunteers for that Tuesday lunch slot. Okay, so if anybody's interested in volunteering, uh, particularly ladies or husbands and wives, uh, you know, as a pair, uh, volunteering to serve lunches um, on Tuesdays, uh, see Natalie uh, for that as well. We're going to have a, um, a testimony coming up here in the next couple weeks uh, as well about how that involvement's been uh, going. I know many have asked uh, about that, so uh, just to know we'll, we'll be having a testimony here soon in the next couple weeks. 
All right, and then uh, uh, men, mark your calendars for the last Sunday in July. We'll be having our uh, monthly men's meeting um, the 25th uh, of the month, uh, so that'll be coming up at the end of July. All right, anything else? Did I miss anything, Alan? No? Okay. Our call to worship this, month, this morning comes from 2 Samuel. As we've been preaching through the book of Habakkuk and um, the, the, the idea of God's judgment on the proud heart and the proud nation, the proud individual, and his grace and mercy freely shown to those who believe in him and trust in him, um, I thought it was fitting to look at another example of where that type of judgment and grace takes place. And we find that in 2 Samuel 24, verse 15 through 17. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. Let's pray. By God, may we always remember that you are a just God. That we need not, need not worry too much that, that you would let injustice off easy. But your judgment will be passed out accordingly. And Father, where we see that in our day and time, may we remember that you're not like a small child who pitches a tantrum because he doesn't get his way. But you are the sovereign God of creation. And your justice is given with wisdom, with dignity, and for the glory of your name. Father, may we remember what you told the prophet Isaiah. That in an outburst of anger, you hid your face from your people. But that was for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, you have compassion on your people. This is what you, our Redeemer, promised to us. And so, Father, we exalt your mercy, even in the midst of discipline, Father. So, Lord, would you come? I know many gather this morning with difficult burdens, with struggles, both internal and external. So, Father, would you meet with each of us this morning, meet with us as a church, this local expression of your global body, that, Father, you might fashion us more and more into the image of Jesus for your glory and for the salvation of the nations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can stand with us and sing.
All right, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Everybody get a good night's rest? Yeah. Are you having a good summer? Yeah, good, good. Well, we're getting close to the end of the section in our book, Big Truths for Young Hearts. Okay, this, the, the last section that we're, that we're dealing with right now is just the, the greatness of the gift of what we've been given in Jesus. Just trying to draw out some more important truths about the gospel. Okay, and then so we'll finish that section this morning. And then next week we'll start the section on the church, which I think is the last part. There may be one more short one. Okay, so we're getting close to the end of this book. Um, but let me ask you a question. As we're getting close to this end, just trying to draw out some more truths about the gospel. Somebody tell me, what is the gospel? Tell me, Marlon. Okay, God's Word. What else? Had a thought? Nope. Put you on the spot. Yep. Okay, the good news. Good news about, about what? Like that I get a sandwich for lunch? Is that, is that it? Okay, good news about Jesus. Okay, what makes it good news? Okay, because he died on, our cross, on the cross for our sins, okay? Our sins that separate us from God, okay? That we just sang, thank you, Jesus, right? Once we're enemies, right? And that through faith in Jesus, his blood cleanses us from our sins, and he makes us friends with God, Okay? Puts us in a family with Jesus and with God, our, our Father. Okay, we have a good relationship with the Lord because of what Jesus has done. And that's only through faith in Him. Okay, so those are some of the things we've been talking about. But some people, even some people who profess to be Christians, will say, well, you know, you don't have to believe in Jesus specifically to be saved. You know, Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins, but... You know, he did that for everyone. So everyone is saved as long as they're sincere and they're honest. Okay? So they will say that, well, people who believe in different gods, okay, like Muslims, Hindu, even the Israelites, okay, even, even people who don't necessarily believe, you know, in Jesus, they're sincere and they're honest in their own faith. And so Jesus' blood covers them. Okay? It's kind of like, well, you get close enough. All right? And so God's just like, well, okay, well, that's close enough. Okay, if your parents, let me put it, give you an example. If your parents ever said to you, clean your plate and you get a piece of candy for dessert? No? <laughs> All right, well, I have said that to my children before. Okay, clean your plate and you get a piece of candy for dessert. Okay, and then it becomes this bargaining. Okay, how close, you know, do I, what does clean mean? You know, well, you, okay, and I'll, oftentimes I'll confess, I give in. Now, you're close enough. Okay, you didn't drink all your milk or you didn't drink, you know, not, not every little speck of rice is gone, but you're close enough, okay? All right, so it's kind of that, it's kind of that idea. Well, you're close enough, okay? And so, yeah, we're, you, you get into heaven. You get saved, okay? So here's the question. Okay, does the Bible really tell us that you have to believe specifically in Jesus in order to be saved? Okay, good, you're done. Okay, well, let's look at that, okay, because a lot of people will say, no, 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 the Bible doesn't say that, okay? So let me give you, I'm going to give you some words straight from Jesus, okay, and then I'll give you two just short little stories from Scripture, okay? 
So Jesus, at the end of his ministry, after he had died, been buried for three days, and rose from the grave, he appeared to the disciples, okay, to the apostles. The people, those, those were the men who would launch the church in the first century. And he appeared to them, and Luke records, these are some of his last words to his apostles, okay? He wrote, uh, Jesus said to them, thus it is written, okay, he's just explained how he himself has fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah who would come, okay, and would save God's people from their sin. All right, he says, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Okay? So let's look at this just real quick. Okay? Notice what Jesus says, that the condition of people is that they are unrepentant, unforgiven, and therefore they're not saved. Okay? And that also, what must people do in order to be saved? He said that they must repent. Okay? They have to repent. Okay, but that, that's not just, okay, well, they do that on their own. Something has to happen in order to get them to repent. There has to be a call to repentance. Okay, that's the proclamation where Jesus says that, the, that repentance for the forgiveness of, of sins will be proclaimed. What does it mean to proclaim? Okay, good. That's why I ask these questions. To be spoken, okay, to be spoken of, to be told, okay, that that's the message of the gospel, Okay, is, it, is that it is proclaimed, it's told. All right, so the, uh, there has to be a call to repentance, there has to be a proclamation. Okay, and the contents of that proclamation is the gospel, okay? Jesus said, in whose name would that proclamation be given? Santa Claus's name? Nope. The president's name? Jesus' name, in his own name. That's right, Okay. So notice what Jesus says, okay, and well, let me, and one other thing, who does this apply to? Do you notice who he said, where, where should this proclamation be given? He said, to all the nations, beginning with Jerusalem, which is where they were, and then it should go out to all the nations, okay? So Jesus is not saying that only a certain people need to hear about Jesus, or, you know, those people are okay, you don't need to go tell, tell them about Jesus, or tell them about Jesus if you want to. No, he's saying that the condition of all people is unrepentant and unsaved. And in order for them to be saved, they have to repent. They have to turn from their sins and follow Christ. But they're not going to turn from their sins unless they hear. And so in order to hear, he's sending the apostles, he's sending the church out to tell the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. Okay? So, those are words from Jesus. Now, let me give you two quick stories, okay? One comes from the life of Paul, okay? Paul the Apostle, okay? He suffered a lot of pain and a lot of... He, he suffered a lot. He was shipwrecked. He was thrown in prison. He was beaten, okay? And he did all these things because he believed in the power of the gospel and the necessity of people to hear it. And he wrote to the Romans, and he told them... He was talking about the, the Jews, okay? The people who had the Ten Commandments and had God's own covenant. They were God, God's own covenant people, and he, he wrote to the Romans, and he said, he said man, he said, I love my brothers in, uh, who, are, who are Jews. They're very passionate about God. Okay? And they, they have a knowledge. They kind of know something about God, but they don't, know the, the, they don't know about God's righteousness, that it is through Christ that they can be saved. See, they're still trying to be saved by doing good works and good deeds. 
And Paul says, I know they can't get there that way. And so he said, I'm compelled to go and tell them the gospel. I'm, I'm compelled to go tell them about Jesus so that they can be saved. He says, how will they hear unless a preacher comes and tells them? He said, that's why I'm going. That's why I'm going. That's why I suffer so much. It's because Paul knew the importance of the gospel that everyone would hear. Okay, there's another story that happens in the book of Acts. All right, Peter, the apostle, he's told by God to go to this man named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was a very pious man. Okay, he was very humble. Okay, he was full of good deeds. All right, and he was very religious. But you know what? He didn't know about Jesus. Okay, so he's a, he's a good moral man. Okay, he's very religious. But he's not saved because he doesn't know about Jesus. And so God sends Peter to Cornelius' house to tell him about Jesus. That there's no other name under heaven by which someone would be saved. And you know what? Cornelius and his household believe in Jesus and they're saved. And they're saved. And God does a miraculous work there to this man who's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He does this miraculous work and he saves Cornelius' house and his, and his household. And then Peter goes back to Jerusalem and he tells them what happened. And the church and the apostles there are amazed because God is saving the Gentiles. God saved this man and his household who, again, was very religious. He was very humble. He was a very moral man. But he was still unrepentant and he was still condemned by his own sin. And so God sent Peter to be, take the message of the gospel to Cornelius' house. And he believed in Jesus and he was saved. Okay, so you see from those stories and what the Bible teaches us is that that no one is good enough to be saved. But this message of the gospel is the way in which people are saved. And that it's faith in Jesus that saves. So let me ask you this question. If Jesus puts this priority on the gospel, how important it is that people believe in Jesus, what does that mean for us, the importance of us in telling people about Jesus? Do you think that's a, that's a big, important thing? Yes. Yes. Okay? Yes, that that is the number one thing that the church should be doing, that Christians should be doing. Okay? That if you have good news that applies to you, you should share it with others. Right? So that they might believe as well. Okay, I know that's way up here, okay? But I hope that that's helpful in you, helping you understand how important the gospel is, not only to us, but in missions. Okay, we talk about missions and the missionaries we support all over the world. Hopefully you can see how, how, why we do that. It's not, we do it because we think it's fun or because, you know, people get a good experience from it or even because we want to give food and tangible goods to people. Yes, those things are good, but the greatest need that people have is to hear about Jesus and to be saved. All right? All right, well, thank you guys. Let me pray for us, and you guys can go sit down. Three- and four-year-olds, you guys are, uh, um, will have your class downstairs, okay? So you can meet your teachers in the back. All right, let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you're not a God who's high up on a hill and that you say, okay, come to me. Anybody who can come up and climb up this giant mountain, you can make it, and, and you'll be right with me. No, 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 you sent your son down the mountain to live among us, to live a perfect life, the life we could not live. And that, Father, your son loved you and was obedient to you to the point of death on the cross, that he might save us from our sins. And your word says that whoever believes in Jesus, 
His sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, and he's clothed in Christ's righteousness. That when you look upon a person, young or old, who believes in Jesus, you see Christ's righteousness, and you say, welcome into my family. So, Father, I pray that these young hearts this morning, Father, would see the importance of the gospel. And, Lord, as, as simply as they understand it, that they may uh, have boldness to share it with their neighbors, with their friends, with their family, anyone that you put in their path this summer. Uh, Father, that, uh, that anyone who might hear would have faith in Christ, would trust in Jesus, and would be made new. Lord, thank you. We give you praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can go be seated. Thank you. If y'all would stand with us for two more songs. Children called by God, let 
before Alan comes up to preach, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer for uh, our mission, missionaries and uh, missions locally and globally. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, as we sang, there is none before you. You are indeed the ancient of days. And as we look at the world around us and restrictions that are put in place by governments and by powers, even by time, Father, Lord, it may look as if the gospel was not going forth with missionaries being recalled and um, borders being closed due to COVID and various, various reasons. But Lord, you are no, we know that you are sovereign over time. And that you are doing a mighty work in the world to redeem a people for yourself through the gospel and the mercy of Christ. And so, Father, we ask that your word would go forth un, unencumbered, uninhibited in all nations. May we be humbled to realize that we don't have to have an American missionary in every single country in order for the gospel to succeed, but rather, Father, the gospel must be present. And so, Father, would your word go forth where Bibles exist on, on desks and, Father, in huts, in tents. May they be picked up and may they be read and may you open eyes to see and ears to hear that you would do as you did with the men on the road to Emmaus, that their uh, that people's eyes would be, their hearts would be opened to understand the scriptures and to see Jesus written on every page. That, Father, repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in all nations. And so, Father, for everyone who has the gospel and believes, would they be faithful to share the good news with those around them? Lord, we specifically lift up our missionaries that we support in Ireland, in Bangladesh, in China, Father, in South Africa, various other parts of the world. That wherever they may be, Father, whether they are still in the country you have placed them in and they are ministering to those of other belief systems, of those who are of other languages, of those who are of, of a different ethno-linguistic descent, Father, would they be faithful to proclaim the gospel? That, Father, you would ignite the hope of Christ in their hearts that would overflow in words and conversations that would be effective to break this, the hard ground of stony hearts. That, Father, the seed of the gospel might be planted and people would repent and believe, and you would make them new creations. And Father, for those missionaries who are still stateside, longing to be back in the country you had placed them in, but Father, for whatever reason, they're, they're here. Father, would you keep them faithful? That whoever you put in their path, Lord, would they, would you, would they be faithful to, to share the gospel with them? whether that's a fellow brother or sister in Christ who needs the encouragement of, of Jesus, or whether that's somebody who's lost and has never known the saving work of Christ. Father, whether we're engaged in missions locally or globally, 
And maybe we're a bit of both. Lord, keep us all faithful to take your mercy to those around us. Now, Father, as Alan comes, would you open your word before us, Father? Peel back the curtain of heaven. May we gaze upon the throne room of your glory and see Christ exalted and high and lifted up. That we might see both your justice and your mercy in the cross of Christ. And may we exalt your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can open up your copy of the Scriptures to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. So it feels like I've been away from preaching for several weeks. Um, So I'm eager to get back, and I'm thankful for Austin for carrying uh, more preaching weight than he's used to. Uh, Austin has a lot on his plate uh, with work alone uh, as a a lead carpenter. Um, He made me stay on a roof all day Friday, and I'm I'm old and tired. Um, And then I stayed an hour past what I'm supposed to stay, you know, and so you know, we're first, we're, we're, we're co-equals here, but on the job side, not so much, right? So, um, I am thankful for Austin. I'm thankful for, uh, for all that he does and for handling the word of God with great competency. So thank you for that, Austin. But we are in Habakkuk chapter three. I've been writing sermons for, for a camp that I'm doing in Florida the week of July the 11th. And I'm writing four sermons at the same time, which is a little bit tricky and not something I would recommend for anybody making her cry. So, um, uh, making him cry, sorry. Um, just trying to see who it was back there. Um, but, and so it was my turn to preach, right? And I've got these other four sermons, these other, them, this thematic trajectory that I'm going on brokenness. And I come to Habakkuk, and it's hard for me to, to shift gears. But I'm thankful because where I landed for today is a bit of low-hanging fruit. Um, there are some complexities as we walk through the book of Habakkuk. But right here, it's not so much the case. So, uh, so it will be easy to follow along today as we look at the very first part of Habakkuk's prayer. So let me give a little bit of a setup to those of you that haven't been with us until today. Uh, We've obviously been preaching through the book of Habakkuk. We do expositional preaching here, so we try to work verse by verse and try to unpack the text that way. And we found ourselves here in Habakkuk chapter 3. Now Habakkuk began by basically expressing his struggle with God's decree or what God has decided or had decided to do, right? Habakkuk, who trusts God, and Habakkuk, who has a strong theological foundation, he still approaches God because God has decided that he's going to bring divine retribution against Judah. And Judah is, is well, we won't get into the dividing of the kingdoms. You can go back and listen to uh, Austin's sermon on that. But know that these are a part of God's chosen people, and then God is using Babylon, he's using the Chaldeans, Chaldeans, however you want to say that, he's using them, a more wicked nation, to bring his divine justice onto Israel or onto Judah. And Habakkuk starts out by acknowledging that, yeah, you're, you're, you're right, I, I get it, I, I, I'm, I'm not questioning your goodness, but Habakkuk just wants to know why, 
Why does it have to be this way when you could do it any other way that you want to? And I think that that resonates with all of us because sometimes we see things happen. And though we believe that God is good and right in whatever he does, sometimes we say, I just I want to know why. Why did it have to be this way instead of, you know, instead of some other way that that you would be right and good to do? Um, but at the end of the day, all that God does is a product of his perfections. All that God does is because he is good, he is right, he is true. And of all the different possibilities that you and I can think of, God always does what is best. So here we are in Habakkuk. He has offered up his questions, then God responded. And you saw last week that God responded by giving these woes for Judah, these 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 words of condemnation what he's going to bring on their head and God is displaying will display through this action but is displaying through his words his own justice and his justice is a byproduct of his own holiness so if you start asking God why this why that you always trace it back to the holiness of God he's distinct he's separate he's not you he's set apart so here we are in Habakkuk chapter 3 I'm sorry, Habakkuk chapter 3, and uh, it's a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shagoinoth. I don't know how to say that, but we're not going to focus on that. We're going to move directly to verse 2, and we're only going to camp out on verse 2 this morning. Because the prayer, how much can you say from verse 2? Well, you'll see. The prayer that he offers in response to God's response begins in one verse with a petition, a final petition. He's heard what God has to say in response to Habakkuk's plea, to Habakkuk's inquiries. And he says, I, I, have, I have one more thing to say. I have just a, a few more things to request of you. And then he gets into his adoration of God, which we'll spend the next week or two going through those things. Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it or make him live. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So those are the petitions that Habakkuk offers the Lord. He asks that the Lord might preserve Judah. He asks that the Lord might provide understanding to Judah. And he asks that the Lord might remember his mercy in the midst of his wrath that's being displayed or poured out onto Judah. And so those are the three things that we'll cover by way of petition because that's the point where he transitions into just praise and adoration, which I think if we walk away from this, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself for next week, but I think this is a great lesson for us to learn in the way that we pray. Habakkuk's prayer is saturated, especially in response to what God had revealed to him, is saturated with praise and adoration instead of requests. His requests aren't self-centered. His requests are others-centered. His requests are for the concern of someone else. Not that it's wrong for us to approach God and ask for certain things. It's not wrong to ask for God's will to be evident in our life. It's not wrong for us to ask God to give us clarity, for God to give us enlightenment, for to give us faithfulness and all of those things. But there's something to be said about us spending our time in praise and adoration. And I don't know about you, but I think for me in my prayer life, I gravitate towards the petitioning side of things rather than the praise side of things. 
Not that I believe God to be a genie in a bottle, but I believe that he can. I believe that he can do all things. And so I petition the Lord with faith, and I think that that's okay. If there's something that we can possibly do about this clattering microphone, that'd be great. Maybe it just needs to be further away from my face. So, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. So to set this up a little bit, Habakkuk has now come to terms. He's come to terms with God's decree. And that's, and that's part of the objective. The objective today is to see that even in the hardest of judgments, even the harshest of judgments that are passed on to the believer, those judgments are still laced with grace and mercy. Because you and I, as believers, never receive what we fully deserve. Even though we're in Christ and He has atoned for sins, God still disciplines His children. God still disciplines those that He has chosen. And that is not wrong of Him. It is not unfair. It is not unjust. It is absolutely fair and right and good. And Habakkuk sees this. Habakkuk isn't questioning the rightness or the goodness of God in what he has said he's going to bring on the head of Judah. Not to mention what he's going to do to Babylon. Habakkuk is okay with that. Habakkuk has come to terms with that. So he's gone from struggle to acceptance. There's been a transition, a bit of a shift in Habakkuk. You see this all the time when God humbles man. Job does the same thing. Job's Job's got a difficult situation he's dealing with, and he starts to question God. And then when God speaks and says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you with this? You know, who can water, who can, who can measure the waters with a span? I mean, God is saying, who are you compared to me? And who are you that you would question me? You're a lump of clay sitting there just waiting to be molded or shaped into whatever I deem fit for you. So you have no business asking me why this and why that, right? And then God responds, and Job's response after that is similar. He says, I've spoken once. I will speak no more. I put my hand over the door of my mouth so that I will not speak against you. And you see that all the time, Isaiah encounters a holy God. He's grumbling about Israel, just as so many prophets do. And God shows him his holiness. And Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am ruined. I am ruined. This is what happens when God really shows you your place. And God showed Habakkuk his place. More importantly, more directly to the context, he showed Habakkuk Judah's place. And so Habakkuk is fine. He's gone from struggle to acceptance. And it's here we see that Habakkuk offers up a proper response to God's decree. He offers a proper response to God's decree. Oh, Lord, I've heard your report. I've heard of your work. And I fear you. He's accepted this. He's accepted it because God has revealed this to him. And here's the difference. Here's what I think is important that I want to kind of highlight for a moment Habakkuk began, as many of us do, by accepting what God does. But there's a difference in accepting what God does and accepting that which God does as right. Because there are people that if you talk to enough of them, they might say, you know what, God can do what he wants, that's fine. But maybe they just don't agree with the way he did it. God can do what he wants, he's sovereign. I don't really like what he did. I don't really know if that was the best way. I mean, you may not know people like that. I've heard that in my lifetime. But it's important that you draw a line of distinction for yourself, as Habakkuk has for himself, in that we don't just 
agree with what God is doing. We see that it is right and that it is good. And sitting here in our padded, comfy chairs, you know, or standing on this stage looking at you in your padded, comfy chairs, that's very easy to say. But when the rubber starts meeting the road and hell kind of descends on your head, if I can kind of use that as an expression, and things get really, really hard, the, the things change a little bit. Well, is God really good all of a sudden? Is God really fair, you know, in, 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 in all of his decisions? I lost my child. Is God really fair? Is he really good? Is he really light? How could he be loving, as people say, is when this is what I'm going through in my life? You know, I'm trying to kick this addiction. Don't you think that God would want that for me? I mean, God is sovereign over that. I understand that I have some responsibility. I have to fight. I have to, I have to do what I have to do by grace. But God is ultimately responsible for all things, though there's no darkness in him. And then when the rubber starts to meet the road there, we maybe struggle a little bit. Oh, he, God does what he does, and, 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 I, and I get that. I accept that he does that. But can we accept that he's right and good in all that he does? Is he right and good that he tells Assyria to attack Israel, and then he judges Assyria for the attack that he told that for the attack on Israel? Is God good for that? Well, yeah. Is he right? Absolutely. You see, I'll get into this in a moment, and we talk about this all the time. But it's important to maintain this worldview. Is we approach God sometimes, and we have these human lenses, these human standards, and that's how we see God, and we think we've got him figured out. We don't use the Bible as the standard. We say, you know what, in my experience, I don't know that this is the best way. And so we apply these experience and these standards onto God, and we tend to dictate as though he's the clay and we're the potter, what's the right way things should come about because we know best. We bring our infinite knowledge and our infinite wisdom to the table, and we put it on a scale, and we say, here, see how that lands. Right, so this is a problem. So Habakkuk transitions from struggle to acceptance. He's accepting not only what God does, but that what he does is right and that it's good. But we go wrong sometimes because we apply human standards to God. We think he has to operate within a human framework, and he doesn't. He goes from acceptance, and then he begins to reflect. Listen to this. He says, I've heard your report and your work. Most likely, directly, Habakkuk is thinking back to the Israelites being set free from Egyptian bondage for all those, all those years. And he's, and, he's, and he's thinking in his mind of all the things that God did during that time after he freed them, leading to the point where they're at now. And he sees over and over, hey, God was so gracious to you and you acted this way, so God did this. Hey, God was so gracious to you and you acted in this way, so God did this. Do you not remember the rebel of Korah and the earth consumed a ton of people because of their rebellion? Do you not remember these things? Habakkuk's probably in context relating or thinking back to those things. He's reflecting on the work of God. He's thinking of those things. And then he says, I'm thinking of those things. I'm thinking of you. I'm thinking of, 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 of how you operate. I'm thinking of your standard. I'm thinking of what I've seen throughout the years with, with regards to how you work and move in the lives of people, especially your beloved, especially your called people. And he says, I fear you. And I think that's a very, very important issue to reflect on for a moment. Habakkuk knows what God is capable of. I mean, you, you heard Austin preach on it last week, those woes, as God just starts to lay out what's in store 
for Judah. And you and I have the privilege of hindsight where we can look back through, through Scripture and we can look at Israel's journey. We can look from Genesis to now and we can see God's activity. We can see God's divine retribution and his justice. We can see these things. We can see calamities that are brought into the lives of people because God is just. We can see that Moses was not let into the promised land. Why? Because he didn't regard God as holy. If Moses didn't make it, I sure wouldn't make it. I mean, it all came down to whether or not Moses spoke or, 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 or hit a rock with a stick. And God said, I'm not letting you in this promised land. You led the people through Israel for all these years, and he's still not going to get there? Uzzah. Uzzah is trying to carry the Ark of the Covenant, right? And God said, don't touch it. Don't touch it. Uzzah touches it, and he dies. Did Uzzah have in his heart any kind of evil intention against God? No, absolutely not. But as one, the, one theologian says, that Uzzah dared to think, what did he say? Let's, yes, that, that, that he dared to think that his hands were possibly cleaner than the dirt that God made. Thank you. You know, wasn't in my notes. I'm glad I got the peanut gallery to help me. So thank you, guys. Um, that was R.C. Yes, yes, thank you. Uh, back to, uh, so back to the fear of God. I mean, this is, we see this. God works this way. Um, he knows that God is holy, and he knows that his holiness demands justice for transgression. He knows this. So Habakkuk fears what is coming to Judah, and rightly so. So here's my question for you, not to answer out loud, but just to reflect on. Do you fear God? Do you honestly fear the Lord. Now we talk about fear and that can be a little bit confusing because you may say, well, no, I'm not, I'm not afraid. I don't go hide in a corner like, like God's going to zap me with lightning or something like he's out to get me. You know, I'm, I'm in Christ. I mean, I'm his beloved child. I have the righteousness of Jesus and I don't, I don't fear hell. I don't fear condemnation. I don't feel God's hate, fear God's hatred. He, he loves me. You know, uh, you're right in that sense. No, in that sense, no, you don't fear God. You don't fear condemnation if you're in Christ because you're freed from that condemnation. You know, you are the beloved in Christ. You have the infinite love, favor, and affection of God through Jesus. Jesus earned that for you. Jesus purchased that for you by offering up himself. So, so the exchange can't be any better. Because Jesus offered something that only Jesus could to secure something that only Jesus could. So absolutely, we have that side of it, which says, no, I don't, I don't fear that aspect. But there's an aspect where we do fear. I mean, even, the, even, the pro, even Solomon says the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, Deuteronomy says, and now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? To walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is, uh, he is your praise. He is your God who performed for, the, for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. So yeah, we are to fear the Lord. So what does this fear mean if we're not to cower in a corner and have this abject terror of the wrath of God? Well, there is a sense in which there is a respect that we have for God. But what's mainly connoted or mainly emphasized here in this word fear is the idea of a reverence. Because there's a difference in a respect. Through respect, you can revere. 
But this is more than just respecting his title, just respecting his person, more than just respecting his power. There's an awe, there's a sense of worship, there's a reverence that comes with this fear. This fear is a proper disposition to the power of God and his hatred for sin. We want our children to fear discipline. We want our children to fear transgressing the rules that we've set for their protection. I don't want my child, I don't want to come home and my child is afraid of daddy because he beats them. I don't want my child to be afraid of daddy because I curse them out or because I'm abusive. That's not the idea. The idea is that they fear the consequence as they're administered properly in the context of Scripture as a form of discipline. There is a fear that's right and that's good that helps to keep them at bay and in check. It's a, it's a, it's a keeping in check. Those who, well, we've already gone through those who kind of paid a price for ultimately not really fearing God. I think there's a, again, Habakkuk, here's the report of God. He reflects on these things. He says, you know, I fear you. I fear you. I think we've been lulled to sleep by the mantra of God's love and favor for so long that we operate as though we're untouchable. You follow what I'm saying? I mean, talk to anybody that you want, and you hear a lot about, well, God is love, God is love. You talk to them about God's justice, you talk to them about things of this nature, and they don't want to go so far, and this is just my generalization of my experience, okay? I don't like to hear these hard things about God, that he is just, but he's equally just as he is loving, right? So why don't we talk about these things? Sin is a reality, right? And if you can't, you talk about sin, you have to talk about justice, you have to talk about holiness. But we're so inundated in our churches even, again, personal experience, with so much about the love of God, the love of God, the love of God, that we forget that the love of God is also represented through his love for his glory, through his justice. And that creates an illusion. It creates a problem. And it creates a fearlessness in us sometimes. Now let me tell you the danger of fearlessness. Fearlessness leads to licentiousness. We want to do right by God because he saved us. Not so that he will. But we want to do right by God. And we want the root of that to be, I fear that there could be consequences for my actions. I'm saved in Christ, but God loves me enough to discipline me as his child. How did God discipline David when David rebelled against God? God killed David's baby. Do any of you want to end up in that situation? I mean, I don't think so. But that's what the scripture says. That's not me extrapolating. That's not me kind of deducing on my own. That's word for word what the text says. That's a reason for me to fear God. Because I am just clay. And if God wants to make a point to the rest of the world about his holiness and his justice and to incite fear so that man stays in check, then God is right and good to do so. I think we should consider three key items that will help anchor us to the reality of God's faithfulness. Very quickly, his person his works, and his promises. So this is kind of your, what do you do with this? How does this work out for you? When you struggle with God's decision, God's decrees, and we have them all the time, 
stand outside for two minutes, look around, you'll find something that will cause you to struggle a little bit. Why does this have to be this way? Why couldn't it just be that way? When that creeps up in your mind, take a step back and consider who God is. What's his nature? He's holy. He's just. He made this world and he made it good. And then man said, no, thank you. I want what the serpent offered me. I want that. Yeah, you've done all these great things, but no, thank you. I'd rather have that. God is a as the as the grand architect, God as the creator of all things does not have to tolerate when man when man, you know, throws it back in God's face as a giant. No, thank you. We consider his person. We consider his works. Look back at all that God does and see the statement that he's making. See how he's helping us establish a worldview by giving us all the events that are recorded in Scripture for us to have so that the curtain can continuously pull back so that we know God better and so that we understand why these things happen when they happen. And we have a proper response in our own hearts and as we explain those things to others. And then we consider his promises and know that you know, there are all these great things that are promised and are still intact despite the hard things that happen to us. So, he offers a proper response to God's decree, and then he offers a petition for the preservation of life. These are pretty simple, pretty quick. Habakkuk makes a final appeal to God that he not utterly destroy Judah, but that he would preserve their lives. I mean, he's resting on God's promise. He's resting on this covenant. He's trusting in that. He has some questions, but he's trusting in that now he doesn't just accept, but he accepts that God is right, that God is good and all these things. And he's resting on these promises, and he's banking on that, and he's saying, look, you got to do what you got to do. But please, please, just don't take them out. Don't annihilate them. He knows it's necessary for Judah to suffer what they're going to suffer. He knows it's necessary for God's justice to be poured out. He knows that. He understands that, most likely because he considered the work of the Lord. Habakkuk knows that salvation truly comes through the judgment of God. Now, I'll go ahead and reference this real quickly. If you want a little bit of a help on understanding one of the themes of the Bible, and that is the glory of God and salvation through judgment. Jim Hamilton, a professor at Southern Seminary, wrote a book. It's roughly 600 pages. As he argues that that is one of the dominating themes of Scripture, is that the glory of God and salvation through judgment. And he walks through and does a biblical theology of God's judgment and God's deliverance throughout the Bible. He begins in the garden with paradise lost. He goes through the flood. He goes through the exodus. And just mentioning those, you can see. You can see a pattern. There's a garden. Man sinned against God. What did God do? By nature, he has to deal with sin. So what does he do? He places a curse on man and on the world. And then man is kicked out of the garden. Man now needs to be redeemed. Man's going to die. There's a curse. But even though there's a curse, man can be redeemed. Man can have salvation. We know that it's in Christ. So there had to be a judgment in order for there to be a salvation. The flood, this is all representative of what's leading to the cross. The flood, God brings the flood waters, the waters of judgment so that there could be salvation because God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. The exodus, same kind of thing. God shows deliverance in rescuing Egypt, but he does so through a judgment known as the plague that he brings on the head of Egypt. Each of these judgments culminating in some form of earthly salvation ultimately point to the judgment of God the Father onto the Son, the cross. 
It's through these judgments and justice that God brings about salvation and preserves life. So Habakkuk offers a petition for the preservation of life. He offers up a petition for understanding as well. Habakkuk asks God that in the time of Judah's punishment, that they learn from their mistakes. So you see, in the midst of the years, revive it. Or in other words, in the midst of the years, make him live. I know revive it's a weird term, and the ESV uses that English. But in the midst of years, restore them or, or, or make them live. In the midst of the years, make it known. Habakkuk prays that they might understand. That they don't go through all of this judgment without making the connection in their hearts and minds as to why they're going through it and without seeing that God is is good. And what a prayer of Habakkuk. I mean, do you pray this way? I mean, I know for me, a lot of times when when I see something unfolding in someone's life, and I don't know if it's God's judgment, you know, I, I'm not God. I, I don't know that all the time. I'd like to think that a lot of things we see are a part of God's judgment, but I don't know that definitively. But when you pray for folks, do you pray immediately, you know, lift this from them, make it easy on them or something like that. And I'm not saying that's a wrong way to pray. I'm just saying that's not how how Habakkuk started. His prayer was, hey, don't kill them. Uh, Make them understand. Because sometimes it's in the crucible where we learn the most. You know, when I make a mistake at work and Austin pulls me to the side and beats me with a stick, I learn. Okay, I learn that way. Right. Um, I know, I know. <laughs> he's probably, he's got it for me. He's going to, I make these little comments about him where he can't, he can't say anything, but make his little cricket chirps. And then he takes it out on me at work. So, um, anyway, so when we discipline our kids, we, we don't, we don't discipline kids just to express our anger. I know we're angry with children sometimes and, you know, and, and sometimes we, we shouldn't, but we discipline in anger. And the point is, we want to teach them. You know, that's what we want for them. How is that? I mean, God, God set that paradigm up so that we might understand how God works with us. You know, I'm going to discipline my children. It's going to be painful. I'm not going to annihilate you. I'm going to discipline you. You'd be surprised what you can live through, <laughs> but it'll, it'll, it'll discipline you. That's, that's, that's borrowed from the movie Aladdin years ago. It just came to my brain. Mm-hmm. This issue proves to be most critical in developing a proper worldview. Thus says the Lord, listen to this. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Uh, Jeremiah 9, I believe. I didn't write the, the, the reference here. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. The Lord delights in you as you understand and glorify Him. Because it's through our understanding of the Lord that we can make much of Him. I think I've made this uh, example illustration maybe years ago, but it's, it's worth it again. My relationship to Sarah is different 16 years in than it was when it began. I know now better how to make more or how to make much of my wife. She has changed. I have changed. She's gone uphill. I've gone downhill. But we see that there are changes. And what used to be something special to her may not be so much anymore. 
And so as I've grown in my understanding, as she changes, not that God changes, but as she has changed into the woman that she is, I can better make much of her, right? Not that I do the greatest job, but that is the reality. That's the dynamic. And as we get to grow in our understanding of God, whether it's through the crucible, whether it's through suffering, whether it's through hurting, and it's not easy, then what happens is we can grow in our affections and in our expression of thanks to God, which glorifies him, and he delights in that. Understanding the character of God helps us to understand the justice of God. I had a neighbor come to my house the other day. She was looking for uh, her son uh, who was over playing. He uh, doesn't have a phone or whatever. She just was driving by and stopped by to see if he was there. He was not. He was riding scooters in the neighborhood with Wesley. I step outside, and, 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 and we talk for a minute. And she starts to, uh, starts to talk about another individual. And my response was, well, my Christian worldview says such and such. You know, uh, she would say something else. I said, well, I'm a Christian, and my worldview, this is, this is why I think the way I think with regards to what you're saying. That's why I kept saying my Christian worldview. I was trying to, uh, I was baiting a little bit, right? And finally, she says, well, I'm not a Christian, but my philosophy is X, Y, and Z. Be kind to others. That's great. You borrowed from the Christian worldview, but okay. Um, don't kill animals. Be kind to them. I'm like, that's not Christian worldview. I have dominion. Would you like some bacon? You know, so <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that, but, but. She was saying, here's my philosophy, here's my standards. And I said, so you've created your own standards. Well, yeah, it's just how I think. I said, okay. I said, you know, so we talked about why that's problematic. I said, because you are the basis of your own morality. You are the basis, you know, you, you are the final standard, you know. And so and I said, can I express to you what the Christian worldview is? And she had said some things, uh, some misgivings, some misunderstandings about Jesus. She didn't believe that Jesus actually was a historical figure at all. We talked about that, got past that, I think. It was about an hour and a half conversation. It was fantastic. But without sharing the whole thing, which ended up being a great, great, great conversation, you know, that, that uh, because of that, you know, Sarah and I received an invite to come on their back porch and talk more about those things. So we'll see if that, if that happens. But. She got to places, which I hear all the time, like Job, um, like Moses or whatever, where she would say, but your Christian worldview is that God is loving, loving, loving. How could he be if he did this to Job? How could he be if he would not let Moses do this? How could he be here? How could he be there? So we began to talk through all of those things, but it came down to she had a complete misunderstanding of what the Christian worldview was. She had a complete misunderstanding of who God is. She didn't think on God's holiness, so therefore she didn't get God's justice. You know, she got it a little bit more when I said, now imagine you're the CEO of a company, Fortune 500 company that you have built up from the ground. And then one of the lowest of the low peon employees, like me at the construction company, comes to you and says, the way you're doing this is dumb. And uh, you need to change your ways. What are you going to do? She got sassy, and it was quite funny. But proving my point, she goes, I'm firing that person. I said, right, because you're the CEO. How dare somebody question the way you're doing stuff, right? And this blindsided, you see where it's going. But she did not. It was a great moment. And she just said, I said, I said, I called her by her name. I said, ma'am, I said, 
this is the way we think about God. He's created all these things, but unlike you, he's perfect. You know, he's made all of this, and he set a standard for our good. And we said, no, thank you. We said we could do it better. Or we want what the, what the serpent is offering us. You know, and, and things turned a corner at that point. And when she walked away from that conversation, she says, I'm thinking differently about things now. And I'd like to have more conversation. And it was just misunderstanding. I'm not saying she's in Christ. She's not. But my goodness, just a little information helps to provide the right lens, at least to understand. I can't tell you how many times she says, I get it now. I don't know if I agree, but I get it. That makes sense. We talked about everything from home runs to homosexuality. I mean, it was everywhere. And she says, I get it. I get the Christian worldview, and I understand why you hold that view based on who God is. But I struggle with it. I mean, that's, we're getting somewhere, right? And Habakkuk prays, and he says, I, I want them to understand you. You know, they're going to suffer because you're going to bring retribution on their head. But the best thing that can happen to them is they come out on the other side understanding your love, understanding your character, understanding your attributes, understanding more who you are. And therefore, you can be glorified all the more. I mean, we are clay, and he's the potter. God is always fair and always good. And then Habakkuk says, in wrath, remember mercy. That's the final thing he offers as a petition before he transitions into, um, into his praise and adoration. Habakkuk doesn't ask God to remove judgments, and that's important. He doesn't say, hey, don't, don't judge them, please. He sees it's necessary. He knows that it's good. And I think we should take some cues from that. Rather than being so quick to say, hey, God, don't. Don't, don't punish them. Don't discipline them. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that's wrong. You know, if I'm going through a hard time, please pray that it's easy for me. <laughs> please, please pray that God in your, in your wrath, you know, which literally translates in your trembling, provide mercy. Have you ever prayed this way? Perhaps your prayers usually go more like this. God, please take away their pain. And granted, there's, there's, there's suffering that's persecution. There's suffering that's you know, loss of loved one, there's that kind of suffering. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, hey, you've sinned and God's bringing judgment on you, okay? I'm, I'm talking in this context of, of suffering and judgment. We don't always know if it's God's judgment on something. But these judgments are necessary, and Habakkuk got it. There are some who would say, God was a bit harsh towards Judah. This is what this lady said towards, you know, Job. But remember, God did not give Judah the full extent of what Judah deserved, and that's an important thing to keep in mind when we approach these situations is that no one on this side of heaven or hell is getting what they deserve. No one walking on earth, the fact that they're on earth is evidence that they're not getting what they deserve. And we arrive at that conclusion because we understand that God is holy. We understand that according to the book of, the, of, of James that one sin separates us. And not even one sin committed, but the inherited sin, the inherited guilt separates us from eternity. And it's not an issue of God's unfairness, but it's an issue of God's holiness. The problem with this kind of sentiment is that it focuses sympathy towards the recipient of God's wrath while failing to consider the reason for God's wrath to begin with. When we start seeing the situation from the vantage point of God's holiness, we then begin to see the severity of sin against God. Let me share this with you. Uh, some of us were alive when this happened. Most of us not. 
others of us would not remember because we were too young. But in the late 1970s, a man was arrested named John Wayne Gacy. He killed at least 33 young boys that are known. There's speculation as though he killed many more. But this guy would dress up as a clown, and he would go to parties, children's parties. A winsome guy, family man, a businessman who people thought the world of, but behind the scenes he had a quiet, different kind of life. He killed at least 33 young men between 1972 and 1978. He worked his way into their lives by attending fundraisers and children's events. And he would prey on these young men. I don't know what else he would do to them. And he would kill them. Bury them under his house and in different places. And all they know of are 33. He was sentenced to death and was executed by lethal injection in 1994. Now this man, this man was a serial killer and he murdered children. And you hear this. And maybe in your mind you say, justice. That's what he gets. I mean, he maliciously, vindictively, awfully took these kids, preyed on these children over and over and over again, methodically. Preyed on their innocence. You understand what I mean by that. And killed them. And we'd say, what happened to him again? Lethal injection. I could say, well, he was quartered by horses, and you probably wouldn't have an issue with that. I could say he was drowned until they stopped moving. You'd say, justice. I could say, well, he was hung by a noose. I could go through any medieval type of torture unto death, and you'd probably say, justice. He killed 33 children. He killed 33 boys, little boys who couldn't defend themselves. You'd say, it's justice. Because you see the heinous nature of the crime, and it disgusts you. But you don't have a problem with justice being dispensed on John Wayne Gacy, do you? But when God says, you have offended my holiness, and then God dispenses justice, do we balk at that as though it's not fair? Why are we okay with the justice of John Wayne Gacy? Why are we okay with the fact that... um, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered in prison after all that he had done. Why are, why, why are we okay with, with you know, Ted Bundy and, the, and, and him facing execution for all the murderous activity that, that marked his life? And we'd say, justice, I'm okay with that. I'm good with that. Some of you, to quote the Green Mile, kill him twice. You know, you might, you might think that way. He can't serve enough justice for what he did. I mean, I talk to people like this who they have a strong sense of justice, and I get it. But, but God's going to bring a woe or going to bring retribution onto his people, Judah. Come on. Lighten up, God. It's a bit harsh. All of mankind, with every sin, commits high treason against God. But by the grace of God, there is also the mercy of God. For believers, God's justice or God's judgment are always laced with mercy. We never get what we fully deserve. We never get what we fully deserve. We never get that. Bodie Balkum said this, you woke up under his mercy this morning because his judgment didn't kill you last night. 
And his judgments should have killed you last night. The hand that dispenses justice, church, and consequence is the same hand that dispenses grace and mercy. There's even grace and mercy offered towards the unbeliever. Every laugh, every smile, every enjoyment, every meal that satisfies hunger, every, every drink that satif- satisfies thirst. Every vacation where there is relaxation, laughter, and time with friends and family, these are all enjoyed by the unbeliever because of God's grace and mercy. Every moment spent not under the holy wrath of God is grace and mercy, but the waters of God's justice will only stay behind the dam of his mercy for so long. Eventually, mercy will run its course, and the time for God's unrelenting wrath will fall on the heads of those who are not his. And it's important that as we look at that reality, we look at it not only as though we accept what he does, but we accept that what he does is right and good. There's grace and mercy toward the believer as the same toward the unbeliever. We deserve hell every moment of our lives because we have transgressed God's law. We've missed the mark. For those who would say God was a bit harsh with Judah, remember God did not give Judah the full extent of what they deserved. So this is Habakkuk. A final petition because he loves Judah so much. He loves Judah and he accepts that God is right. He accepts that God is good. But he approaches God and he says, preserve their life. He said, make them understand. And he said, in your wrath, show mercy. In closing, I would say that that God would choose to give us this text has its eternal, as its eternal word has a... uh, I have to believe that the modern reader can take away a few principles from it regarding the nature of God towards his beloved. First, when God disciplines his own, it's not for the purpose of extermination, but for preservation. The preservation of life is not just in living, but also in living abundantly. When God disciplines his own, it's so that we might come to greater understanding of him for the most loving thing that God could do is to make himself knowable to us. And then thirdly, when God brings about the harshest of discipline on the believer, it is not without mercy because we never get what we fully deserve. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, I do ask this morning they would grant us the wisdom that we might be able to take this text and apply it and live the truth of it in our lives. Lord, although it's, it's, it's difficult to see or endure hardships, whether it's on us or whether we watch someone going through it, even if it's, even if it's your retribution against their sin, it's, it's still hard because we love people. And Lord, we don't relish the fact that people suffer. So God, I pray that when we see moments like that, that our prayers would be molded after this prayer here that we would ask for preservation of life that we would ask for understanding on their behalf and that we would ask that you might be merciful lord and i pray that in our own lives that when we sin when we transgress or that although discipline is necessary and you do it in love lord may we understand may we survive it or may you be merciful to us and we're so grateful We lack so much understanding. We struggle. 
we're inconsistent. <laughs> God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forbearance with us. Lord, help us so that we might be continuously fashioned into the image of Jesus so that we rightly represent you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.